Father, we come before you with our word open that came from you. We'll just declare it right now. We recognize it as your word. It's inspired. You caused men to write it down thousands of years ago, and it still speaks to us today. And we would ask that it would speak to us now. But I will say on behalf of all of us, Father, that we recognize there's a danger in opening your word. And in that, we're inviting you to shape us. And I know some are going to leave here today having heard things they didn't think they were going to hear. And I pray that you'd be gentle with us and that you would allow your spirit to speak in ways that only you can speak. We will declare it as alive, it is active, it is sharper than a two-edged sword, but it is also dangerous because we are tempted as people to want to do things our way and your word shows us your way. I pray that you would help us to be conformed to your desires, regardless of how we came in this morning. Use your word to shape us in our thinking. We, we invite that. So we would ask for this in Jesus' name, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide. Amen. Um, I'll make a statement, and I'm going to ask you to respond, whether you agree with a, a nod of the head or a loud amen or a, a yes. But here, here's the thought. Um, there is purpose in everything. Okay, Meaning by that, and you may not necessarily agree, it's okay, there's no random chances. Meaning everything that happens is for a purpose. So if we come to that mindset, this next statement I'm going to make is going to sound really weird to you, and you're going to think, what was Mark smoking when he was on vacation? Okay, but just hear me out. The certainty of suffering encourages me. And you're going, what? The certainty of suffering encourages me. And, and that's really going to be fleshed out when you come into Hebrews chapter 12. We recognize that the terms by which we came to Jesus Christ, presuming that you're a believer, that you're a follower, and, and if you're not, you're just going to have to follow me through this, but understand the terms by which a Christian comes to Jesus are these. Jesus himself said in Matthew 12, you cannot come to me unless you willingly lay down your life. Because he who seeks to save his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. If you grew up in church, you spent any time reading God's word, you understand those are right from Jesus. Matthew chapter 12, he's talking to his followers when he said that. So when people hear that, many people, especially in the Western world, say, yeah, but I didn't think he really meant that. That's for like people living in another time. Isn't it? Or like people living in northern Iraq. Does that really fit in our world? Does he expect me to lose my life? If we take that framework of thinking and step back into the first century, 
And the mindset of these Hebrews who are receiving this letter will better understand the way they were approaching this letter that was sent to them because persecution is coming to them from all directions. As a matter of fact, specifically in, in chapter 10, we saw that he said to them, you endured persecution to a great degree. Some of you lost your businesses. Some of you lost your friends. You were made a public spectacle. Some of you actually even spent time in prison. So they're experiencing affliction in the forms of social pressure and economic pressure like most of us have never experienced. Now, when you're going through suffering, it's really, really easy to think God has forgotten you. Or what is up with this circumstance? Is God neglecting me? It's very easy to think that way, but there's a common thread coming out of Hebrews chapter 12, which will sound like this. Just because you're struggling doesn't mean that God has forgotten you or that he's neglecting you. That's the lie that Satan wants you to believe, that God doesn't have your best interest at heart. And you see it's a very old lie. It goes all the way back to the time of the Garden of Eden. His lie to Adam and Eve was that God does not have your best interest at heart. That's why he used this excuse when you eat of the fruit, God knows that when you eat of the fruit, you will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. God's just trying to keep something from you. See, God doesn't really care about you. That's the lie that's told. But the opposite is true. God wants you to know when you're going through it, he's really got your back. Now, let me help you to see this. And we go through Hebrews 12. Go to verse 4. He begins building the case. Hebrews 12, 4. We left off in verse 3 last time. It says this, In your struggle against sin... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, in context, as we've looked at the book of Hebrews, we understand this struggle that they have against sin, this particular sin, is the sin of unbelief. They have been struggling with the fact that God has their best interests at heart. They've been tempted to run back to Judaism because they're seeing friends who are being persecuted. Some of them have gone into prison, and they're thinking, this is not the right way. But he's acknowledging shedding blood is a really real possibility. Why? They live at the time of Caesar Nero. And Caesar Nero was known for killing Christians, for throwing them into the Colosseum and letting lions eat them. So he said, you haven't yet become a martyr. You haven't yet shed blood. But in verses 2 and 3, if you let your eyes just drift up the page, you'll see that he was making the case that Jesus suffered far more. Jesus endured the cross. And he already made the case in chapter 11 of the saints of the faith and what they went through. But you can imagine the attitudes that are being demonstrated towards them. If, if you could put yourself back in the first century, or you could take those from the first century and pull them forward to 2014, it, it would sound like this in our world. What have you gotten yourself into? I mean, you're losing your business? You've lost your friends, your family, your tradition, your heritage? Your very life is at stake? What is this Christianity thing that you're involved in? You're going to lose everything. Now, as we've seen, they're under this type of pressure. It's really intense. And I imagine some at this point are perhaps wondering, where is God in this? Where, where is God in the midst of He's supposed to supply all my needs. He's supposed to have all my answers. If I've learned anything through the course of my walk with Christ in all these years is that I know for sure God uses difficulty in my life as a mechanism, as a mechanism to prepare me for things that I didn't begin to understand that he had in store for me. 
And I'm willing to believe that the same is true for you. I want you to understand there is a vast, vast difference in the biblical language between God's discipline and God's judgment. And we need to make sure we really understand the difference in that. God's punishment or God's discipline or God's action against us sometimes can feel like God's judgment. But here's the way this word is used. I want you to see the Greek word on the screen. Just two Greek words this morning. Pahadeus is this concept of the nurturing of a, of a student. It's what teachers did or what parents do for children who are under their tutorage. And the concept behind it is nurturing. So in a really broad term, this is what people did in the first century for training and cultivating and educating someone. So that's the concept behind the discipline. And you're going to see this word discipline come out nine times in eight verses this morning. So let's move forward with this thought of discipline, and I want to help you to understand it before we go to verse 5, because I see three forms of discipline in the Bible, the way that God brings them out. Here's the first one, reprisal, and the second one is prevention, and the third one is is training, or what we might call education. Let's talk about the first one, this concept of God's reprisal discipline. And I'm tempted to put the word punishment discipline in there. But I won't do it because I know immediately American mindset, we go right to the concept of judgment when we think of punishment. And I don't want you to associate the two. There is a difference between God's reprisal and God's judgment. And so at times, you and I will experience God's discipline as a direct result of sin in our life. And that's when you're going to experience this reprisal discipline. And so here's an example for you. I'm going to, I'm going to use two, actually. One from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there was a king. If you're not familiar with the story, his name was David. King David was the anointed king of Israel. In other words, God chose him to be the king over Israel. Now, there was a period of time when you get to 1 Samuel, you find that David sent his armies off to the northern part of Israel, and they were engaged in a battle. But David stayed behind. David stayed in the city, the king's city in Jerusalem. And he's up on the rooftop of his palace in the evening, and he cast his eyes across the city, And he sees this beautiful babe, her name is Bathsheba, and he says, I want her. And he decides to send his scouts out to find out more about her. Well, what they reveal to him is that she's married. She's the wife of another man. Matter of fact, she's the wife of one of his soldiers who's fighting up in the north country. But he decides, I'm going to take her anyways. And so he brings Bathsheba to his chamber, and as a result of his relationship with her, he fathers a child by her. Now, when he discovers that she's pregnant, he constructs all kinds of details trying to get her husband back from the front line in order to cover over his sin. But it doesn't work. And so ultimately, he sends her husband back to the front line and he orders for him to be fighting underneath the wall of his adversaries so that he will actually be killed in battle. And he's killed. So David has not only committed adultery, he's also murdered this man for his own desires. Now understand that among kings of this period of time, that was common practice. Kings all over the world took women that didn't belong to them, and they murdered men just because they wanted to. It was considered the king's prerogative. But regardless of what culture says is okay, God's word says for God's people that we are not capable or permissible to tolerate sin just because we want to, but rather culture says you can do it, but God's word says you can't do it. 
So God takes his anointed king and he begins disciplining him for the sin that's in his life. And when you read 1 Samuel, if you've never read the story before, you see God's discipline come upon David in such a heavy way, he begins to think he cannot endure it, that his very life will be required of him. As a matter of fact, throughout the course of his life, he suffers the consequences here on earth for what he committed. But you can confidently say, not only was David disciplined by God, he was not disciplined out of wrath. Because if he experienced God's wrath, he'd be separated from God. So David never lost his relationship with God. He was disciplined out of God's love for him. That's an Old Testament example. Here's a New Testament example. Every month, I stand up here once a month, and I will read to you on communion weekend. We do it on the first weekend of the month. I'll read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Sounds like this. Paul says, in, I, I will deliver unto you that which was delivered unto me, that in the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he held up the cup and he held up the bread, and he said, I want you to break this in remembrance of me, and, and we carry out a communion service. Why is Paul even writing that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Because the church at Corinth, they were using communion for party. It came to be a time of drunkenness and debauchery. And so Paul is writing this very strong letter to the Corinthian people who live in the city of Corinth, this letter that we have called the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And he speaks very directly to them. This is what communion is for. And then I read to you typically in verse 27 the warning that Paul says, so a man should examine himself and in so doing is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He writes that because in the very next verse he says, for this reason some of you are sick. Some of you are suffering weakness and illness. Some of you are even dying. What are they experiencing? It's God's church, and they're experiencing the discipline of God. It's a consequence for their action on earth. So we see the very first form of God's discipline is reprisal, or what we would call punishment for sin in our life. What's the second one? The second one is prevention. And prevention takes place when God has to put a a boundary or a hedge around us, just as you and I would set up boundaries for our children. Imagine you lived on a really busy street, and and you, you have the ability to protect your children by putting up a fence in your yard. Lots of cars going back and forth every day. Well, of course, as a parent, you're going to put up boundaries. You're going to put up a fence to protect your children. God puts up a fence. Sometimes what seems like a really unneeded difficulty in our life is really God's hand of protection. Here's my example for that. Paul had what was known as a thorn in the flesh, but I'm not sure you ever stopped to think about why he said, I have a thorn in the flesh. If you're familiar with the story at all, you know that Paul was caught up into the third heaven. We're we're told that he said, whether it's in the body or out of the body, I don't know, I can't explain it, but I saw things that are not fitting for a man to speak of, but to keep me from being proud God did something. Let me put this verse for you on the screen so you can see the way he described it. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. What was the purpose in it? To keep him from sinning. See, he had already sinned, It was to protect him, to take him 
from one place where he wanted to go, God's saying, no, I'm going to put this hedge around you so you won't go there. Paul was apparently capable of great pride. And so God said, as a result of what you've seen, I'm going to give you a reason to keep your pride in check. Now, here's something very interesting. Isaiah in the Old Testament, chapter 6, he had a very similar experience. He saw the throne room of God. Matter of fact, we're told that he saw the cherubim, the seraphim, flying through the throne room saying, holy, holy, holy. And he described it for us in great detail. But we never read that he was given a thorn in the flesh. Why? God knows that you have different needs in your life than what I have in my life. And sometimes he will give me thorns that he won't give you. And he will give you thorns that he won't give me. And in Paul's case, Paul learned God uses hardships for prevention and for protection. So by the time you get to the end of his story in verse 10, he says, Therefore, I am well content for Christ's sake. Even though he's living with this incredible physical pain, we don't even know what it is. Most people speculate who are historians saying Paul was beaten and broken and stoned so many times he actually walked with a limp because of his broken vertebrae in his back. We don't know that that's the case. Other people think he struggled with his eyesight problems. But for whatever it was, Paul learned God uses hardships for prevention. It's very possible that you're going through some sickness difficulty in your life this morning. Or, or you're going through an employment difficulty. Maybe your business is not performing the way you want it to. You might be going through financial difficulty. Or there might be a relationship difficulty in your life. Many times God uses that as a way of placing a hedge of protection around you to keep you from going to someplace that might be even worse than the circumstances than what you're in. Uh, those are the first two. Here's the third one. And this one is, is befuddling because God uses circumstances to train us in ways that are confusing. And I'm, I'm going to use Job as an example. In, in the training form of discipline, God will teach us through discipline if we are willing to listen to what he's trying to say to us. Now, because I'm a guy, I typically have to ask God, what are you trying to teach me? If you guys are like here, like me today, you're fairly thick-headed, right? Okay. Um, women, not so much. I'm not even going to insinuate that. It, my wife seems to learn intuitively much faster than I do about things like this. But because I'm a guy, I have to ask God, what are you trying to teach me? What do you want me to learn through this? Well, what do we learn through God's training discipline? Well, specifically, we learn these two things, but there's many, many other things. These two things for sure. Discipline helps us to better know God's power and God's capacity. And if prosperity makes us self-sufficient, we really quickly learn that problems make us aware of our need for God. We really begin to grasp God's power when we recognize our own powerlessness. Those two things jump out at us when we begin thinking of God's training. So let's use Job as an example. Now, in Job's case, by God's own word, I don't know if you've ever read the story of Job before, but I really encourage you to do it. It's about 42 chapters long. Fascinating book. Oldest book in the Bible. But by God's own word, Job 1.1, it says, Job... That's my guy. He is blameless. He fears me. He shuns evil. That is a man who's after my own heart. But when you read that and you see immediately in the story, God allows him to suffer loss and sickness and ridicule. 
you begin to wonder, where is God in this guy's life? We see very specifically in the story as it unfolds, the sufferings that Job goes through were really messengers of Satan, just like Paul experienced. Now, Job clearly was not suffering reprisal discipline. It wasn't for punishment. He hadn't done anything wrong. God said, this is a man who shuns evil. And and it clearly wasn't for prevention. He wasn't filled with pride. He wasn't like Paul with the thorn in the flesh. This is a man who got on his knees every day, thanking God for what he had. So if it wasn't reprisal and it wasn't prevention, it really clearly was allowed to educate Job. So there's training discipline. And it doesn't just train him, it trains us in the character of God. Now, when you read the story, you'll see very quickly, Job's spending spending all 40 chapters going, what is going on? If you don't know the story, he, he lost his business. The guy's incredibly wealthy. The Bible says he was the greatest man in all the East. So picture the wealthiest sheik you know in Saudi Arabia. And Job's in that caliber. He's got everything. And his business world collapses. His children die. He physically is covered with boils. You come to the end of the story, and the guy is sitting on an ash heap with nothing He's got three miserable friends who they call themselves friends, but they're they're not really encouragers. And and then his wife is the only other person left living in his world. Now, he knows he didn't sin, and he knows God is not tyrannical. So he's trying to figure out what's going on. But when you come to the end of the story, you find that Job, in the end, acknowledges he didn't even need to know the reason for why he was going through what he went through, but rather what he accepted is that God is sovereign, and God is omnipotent, and God is omnipresent, and God is omniscient. So what Job learns through his trial is not the reason for his struggle, but rather that God's ways are greater than man's ways, and God's thoughts are above man's thoughts. So he says to himself, I learned things that are too wonderful for me to understand. What did he gain He gained in the midst of it a view of God he would have never had otherwise. God's discipline, God's counsel, God's power, God's defense. All of it as a result of the struggles that he went through. And Job learned about himself. What did he learn? That human wisdom is not like God's wisdom. See, when we get to know God better, we get to know ourselves better. That's why here at New Hope we spend so much time in theology examining God's Word. Because as you understand God better, you really understand your purpose in life better, why you're here. So this is a great point to ask this question. Are there instances in which God allows His discipline to come into my life which are not sin-related? And Job immediately would say, Me! Me! Yeah, absolutely! And Paul would stand right next to him saying, Me! There are clearly instances in which God brings hard times into our life for disciplinary training, not for punishment as a result of sin. And here's a detail perhaps you haven't thought of. Not just your training, but for the training of the others who are watching you. Because people are always watching us to see how we manage our walk with God. So I would encourage you to do this. When you sense that God is disciplining you, the things that are going on in your life that are not normal, stop and ask God, is this for reprisal? Is there sin in my life? Do what David did. 
David said, will you examine my heart? See if there's any sinful way in me. Or, or ask God, is this for my protection? Are you preventing me from getting into something that would harm me? Or ask him, is this for my training? But when you do that, recognize God does not always show the reason. Job learned that. God doesn't always give the reason. Now, I just want to land on one more point before we go to verse 5 so that you really get this down. There is a vast difference between God's discipline and God's judgment. In the life of a believer, when you're being disciplined, God is not judge. God is Father. Jesus already took the judgment upon himself at the cross. That's why Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Get an amen from that? Yeah, I mean, that's the truth. You don't face judgment. So God is not your judge over this situation when there's sin in your life. You will face his discipline for punishment, but not judge in the wrath of God because Jesus already took that upon himself. Now, apparently, as you come into verse 5, you learn very quickly that these individuals who are in these really hard circumstances have forgotten God's word. Apparently, they have neglected it to the degree that they're confused by the circumstances. So look at verse 5 with me. It says this, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. So apparently, in the midst of their really hard times, they've forgotten God's word. And God's word links discipline with relationship. He always does that. So the author here quotes Proverbs 3.11. King Solomon said this in the Old Testament. You'll see it on the screen. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. See, just because you're struggling doesn't mean that God has forgotten you. And it certainly doesn't mean that God is neglecting you. This is a really good place to reintroduce Romans 8, 28. You've heard this before. And we know that God causes all things to to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And I I told you a couple weeks ago, there's a danger people have in putting the word our in there. God causes all things to work together for our good. And, And there's a danger in that. First of all, that's a misinterpretation of Scripture. God causes all things to work together for good for his purposes, and it's good in our life, but it doesn't always feel good, does it? It doesn't always feel good, does it, church? It just doesn't always feel good. So it confuses a lot of people. They read that verse and think, wait, God says he causes things to work together for good, but it doesn't feel very good. Well, it's because it's got a bigger picture than what you can see in, in a time-limited spectrum that we live in. So this author comes right out in verse 5, and he says, not have you forgotten like a question in in the ESV version that I had on the screen, but the NASB version is much more accurate. It says, you have forgotten, meaning they completely neglected God's word, that God links the two together. Here's what the New Testament Jews had forgotten. They'd forgotten that many of God's people had gone through really, really hard times. That's why he made the case in chapter 11 about the saints of the faith, And here's where they landed in the first century. They believed that prosperity equaled relationship with God. And therefore, if you were prosperous and you had lots of goods and you had lots of great health, therefore God favored you and he really likes you. And if he doesn't like you, you're going to have illness and sickness and troubles and calamity. Well, that's why you see the scribes saying the man who was born blind whom Jesus healed 
This guy was born in sin. His parents were conceived him in sin. And Jesus said, no, he's not covered in sin. He's blind that the glory of God might be revealed in his life. So people associated prosperity with God's favor. They had skewed God's word. And he's telling them, have you forgotten? God is not only disciplining you, he's speaking to you as his children. He speaks to you as sons. Now, he tells you in verse 5, there's a real danger in discipline. And, And here's the danger. You can regard lightly God's discipline in your life. What does that mean? It means you have a wrong view of what's going on, a wrong view of the circumstances. So if you regard something lightly, you're approaching it from the wrong motive. See, if we don't understand our struggles as discipline which God sends our way, we can't profit from those disciplinary acts. And so our reaction can't be right if our view of what's happening is not right. So he's saying, don't regard lightly the discipline of God. Get the proper view of what's really going on. This is very possibly the reason we fall into a why me attitude. Ever heard anybody with a why me? Why is this happening to me? That happened to Job. It was, why is this happening to me? Why is this unfolding in my life? John MacArthur had a very interesting insight. I wanted you to see his quote. He said this, It is usually because we take our problems too seriously that we take the Lord's discipline too lightly. Our focus is on the experience rather than on our Heavenly Father and what He wants to do for us through the experience. Now, there's two things that go on during taking God's word lightly that I didn't put in your notes this morning, but you might want to write them down in, in the margin there on your notes. That we can take God's discipline lightly in two ways. Specifically, we can become callous to God's word. And so like the Hebrews, when they are told, you have forgotten God's word, if you don't spend time in God's word, it's very difficult to recognize God's activity in your life. And you become callous to him and his word. So when he's doing something in us, we don't recognize his hand in it. And instead of the discipline leading to a softening of the heart, it really leads to a hardening of the heart. Causes us to get angry with God because we've forgotten his word. So that's the first one. Here's the second one. We can treat God's discipline lightly by complaining. Now, I know none of you in here would ever do that, right? I mean, we're just not capable. We're Christians, after all. We wouldn't complain about God's activity in our life. No, I'm, I'm aware human condition is that we will complain. It is our propensity to complain. So it's the opposite of being callous in this case. It means our focus is laser locked on God, but for the wrong reasons. And it usually leaks out of us in little murmurings and grumblings about our circumstances, But internally, what's happening subterranean is this thought of, man, God is not handling this situation very well at all. Look at what's going on in my life. Now, we would never say that to other believers. Just keep it internal. But we're thinking it. So the callousness and the complaining cause us to take God's discipline lightly. But here's a consistent thread through both of them. There is a lack of trusting God in the midst of both of those circumstances. In other words, we're not believing that God really has our best interest at heart. That's the very thing that's going on in the life of these Hebrews. Now, I want to give you a perspective you don't hear every day, and I'll tell you why you don't hear it every day in just a moment. I want you to see this quote from Arthur Pink. Arthur said this, Remind yourself of how much dross there is yet among the gold, 
and view the corruption of your own heart and marvel that God has not smitten you more severely. Now, the reason you don't hear that every day is Arthur lived in the 1800s, and and old dead theologians that I like to read are really bold about writing things like that and not afraid to say it. You don't hear things like that every day, but he's right on point. Look at our own hearts and just think, man, God could have smashed me like a bug a long time ago. It's his love that causes him to discipline me and not judge me out of his wrath. That's the grace of our God. Let's move forward now with those thoughts in mind. I'm coming in the last couple of verses here. Verse 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, typically, at least for me, I think it's probably the case for you, when we're going through really hard times, we aren't thinking how much God loves us, are we? I break my arm and say, oh, man, God, look at that. God really loves me. It just, it's not the way we think, typically. Human nature is we look at it and say, what is going on? I thought God had my backside. Now, when we're going through really hard times, we aren't typically thinking about how much God loves us. But look at that passage, verse 6. It stands in stark contrast to that thinking. It says, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines meaning he's speaking to us as sons, daughters, as his children. Now, you cannot prove this to anyone through human reasoning. A a friend who is not a believer in God, who's not a follower of Jesus, watches hard things going on in your life, you can't say to that person, these things are going on because God really loves me. (laughs) They're not going to get it. So what we're really talking about is an exercise of faith. It's something that you understand by faith. Know this for certain. God will not do anything contrary to his nature. And he continually loves, whether we're aware of his love at the time or not. Now, where I'm going to get to this last couple verses, I need to make a hard shift. And I want you to stay with me and hear this track of thinking. All human beings, all of creation, everyone who's ever been born on planet Earth or created, Adam and Eve, from Adam and Eve to the very last person at the return of Jesus, are subject to God's judgment. All humans are subject to God's judgment. Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, have been removed from the judgment because of what Jesus did for us. But all humanity is subject to God's judgment. However, it is his children who experience his discipline and who receive his discipline. That's where the last couple of verses are going, and I need you to understand that as we move forward because what Scripture says very clearly is an undisciplined child is an unloved child, and they grow up to be a burden to society. You ever met an undisciplined child who grew up to be an undisciplined adult? You know, you read about them in the news. The court systems are full of them. Individuals who haven't experienced the reproof of a loving parent. So Scripture says it this way, Proverbs 13, 24, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. So we understand God's principle is a loving parent disciplines their child. It would not be a mark of love to let a child do whatever they want with no boundaries whatsoever. Now, truth, at times, most of us have gone into shopping centers and into stores and wanted to discipline someone else's child, right? (laughs) Y'all been there, okay? 
You fly commercially very long, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. You get an unruly child behind you, bam, 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 pushing on your seat. You want to introduce him to the exit door. Now, the truth is, Lori and I have been to stores before, and I've heard her say it, and I've thought it myself. I probably even expressed it. I, I remember hearing her say one time, if I could just have that child for one week, I could change the trajectory of their life. But you know, the truth is that one week would come and go, and our interest would wane. Why? Because the relationship's not there. It's not our own child, someone else's child. And eventually when the relationship is not there, the interest wanes and you're not going to invest in that person. But what we understand according to Scripture is that God has a relationship with us. He calls us his sons and his daughters, the heirs to his kingdom. And so he obligates himself to us saying, I adopted you and brought you into my kingdom. You belong to me. So a truly loving father is absolutely committed to helping his child conform to the highest standards possible. So it's not possible for God not to discipline us. His love will not allow him not to discipline us. That's what a loving father does. So if you're experiencing discipline in one of those three forms in your life, understand it's not because you don't have sonship, relationship. It's because you do have it. So that's his closing argument when you come to verses 8 and 9. He says this, If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate and not sons. This is really scary. It's the possibility that you're without correction in your life because there's no relationship with God. You see individuals who seem to be prospering in the midst of sin activity in their life, and you look at it and you're confused, you might have to come to the conclusion, that person may not know God. There may be no relationship whatsoever. According to Scripture, it's God's children that receive His discipline. So it's a devastating conclusion. So he uses this really, really strong language. It's rarely used in the Bible. The other Greek word I told you that would be there, it's the word nothos. And it's talking about a child whom the father has no interest in because he's illegitimate. He's not an heir. He's not one who's going to inherit the household. He's not a member of the family. So the father feels no responsibility for him whatsoever. Now, in order to understand these last two verses, you need to put your mind in the mindset of somebody living in the first century who understood this concept of patria postestis. It means the power of the father. And in a, in a Roman household... A father had absolute rule, meaning that when a son or a daughter was born into the house, the father had the authority and the legal right to throw that infant out on the street if he did not want it. And there were people that traveled the streets of Rome picking up infants and raising them because fathers had thrown children out who were deformed or of the wrong gender. Perhaps they were hoping for a daughter, they got a son, or hoping for a son, they got a daughter. Patria potestis. And that power was incredibly corrupted throughout Rome. And children walked in fear of their fathers because a father had the absolute authority to execute his child anytime he wanted, even as an adult. So you could be elected to the Senate in Rome, and if your dad was still alive, you could be a Roman senator, and there was a great fear among the people of Rome that the father, who was not elected, would influence the votes of the senator who was elected. 
And in history, there's even executions of adult men because their father said that young man who belongs to me did not obey me. I want him executed, and no one could protest it. This is the mindset as they come into verse 9. They understand what he's talking about when he says this. Besides this, verse 9, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplined us for our good that we may share his holiness. So verse 10 says, they disciplined as seemed best to them. Now, I expect every one of us, probably every person on planet Earth, has been disciplined out of anger. Now, it's not the preferred form, but maybe as a parent this morning, you've disciplined out of anger. We, We know that disciplining out of anger, as opposed to disciplining out of love, doesn't bring about the kind of learning that we want to have happen. And, and typically it would sound like this. In my household, uh, my kids would smile because this is very familiar to them. You kids, you hear me up there? If I have to come up there, you're going to feel my wrath. Okay, I'm coming. One, two, fake walk up the steps because I didn't really go, I go all the way up there. Three, they, they knew that if I came up, they would feel undisciplined anger because we wanted to produce a result, but they'd be learning out of, out of fear as opposed to learning out of love. So when we understand that God does everything out of the basis of love and his discipline for us is an entirely different approach. Now, this requires one very specific thing. To discipline out of love requires perfect self-control on the part of the one who's carrying out the disciplinary act. Does God have perfect self-control? If you would agree with that, you would say then God can only discipline us out of love. So he has perfect self-control. And his desire, according to verse 10, is to produce holiness in you. So that tells me God does not discipline aimlessly. God produces holiness because he's got an end view in mind. That's the aim of God's discipline, to produce a character like his own. So Peter wrote it down. First Peter, God wants you to be holy as he is holy. Now, right away, I can hear people from New Hope saying, wait, wait, Mark, for years, you've told us we already are holy. That's true. Positionally, you are holy in the eyes of God because of what Jesus did for you. When he sees you, he sees you as holy. What we're talking about is not positional holiness. We're talking about practical holiness, meaning the work of sanctification in your life your daily activities, that you would be holy as he is holy here on planet earth as you carry out activities. So let's close it out with verse 11. This is the reason I couldn't get to verses 12 and 13. Verse 11 says this, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, it's really obvious discipline is not meant to be pleasant. If it were pleasant, it would have very, very little capacity for any correction in our life, for any course change. Uh, If running was easy, everybody would do it and stay in great shape, right? But it's not easy. It's hard. So let's translate that over to surgery or to physical therapy. We go into surgeries or we go into physical therapy knowing it's going to be excruciating. 
Physical therapy can be incredibly painful. But we do it because we know what the end result will produce. Because we know what's going to come out of it. So that gives us a new mindset when we go into it willingly, knowing what the end result will be. Well, when you see God's discipline as meaningful and purposeful and done out of love, it it changes everything. We're told that Jesus went to the cross willingly, and we're also told that he endured because of the joy that was set before him, meaning he knew what was at the end. He endured because of the outcome. So if we can have a new mindset about God's discipline, let me encourage you to leave here this morning considering your struggles this way. If you feel that you're going through some really hard times and maybe they're disciplinary action on the part of God for sin or for protection or for training, perhaps you could look at it from this standpoint, that God's got you in a treatment program Treatment for your sanctification. That perhaps you're going through faith treatments. Or perhaps you're going through righteousness treatments. And so when your friends who are not believers in God would look at you and say, what is going on in your life? You could say, I'm I'm in treatment right now. (laughs) Really? For what? For righteousness. For faith for my good, because God, God loves me. And that may open up a whole new world of conversation, okay? So you could take them to the website and put them on iTunes and, and play this message for them if you want. But I'm going to come back to the framework of my original statement. There is no random chance with God. There is purpose in everything. And if there's purpose in everything... The certainty of suffering encourages me, as weird as it sounds, because God loves me, and he only wants the best for me. So I come to this framework understanding that suffering and discipline is not evidence that God does not love, but that he does. I'm going to ask God to seal this truth in our heart, and we'll jump back into Hebrews 12 and finish up verses 13 and 14 next week, but let's just pray about what we've heard today. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for what you have revealed, and I'm sure it caught some by surprise throughout the course of our our services this weekend, and for the many people who have been here, I'm just going to place it back in your hands that you would take your word and accomplish your purposes for what you sent it forth. And you said when your word is sent forth, it will accomplish its purpose. It will not return void. So, Father, for every man, woman, and child, those who will listen to iTunes in the future, I ask that you would use what has been taught and strengthen us in our walk. Use it to encourage us, but seal it in us, Father, so that the next time we're going through a struggle, We'd be willing to look back at this and remember that you mean it for our good, that you have our best interests at heart. Send us out now with your blessing, Father, and we would ask for this in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.